All right, I want you to open in your Bibles, if you have them, to Mark 12. We're going to start in verse 13 this morning. Going to go through quite a bit of text. If you come in and you don't have a Bible, you're always welcome to grab one. There's some on the side over here, some when you walk in, and uh, you're welcome to take the Bible with you if you'd like. We want everyone to be able to have their own Bible, so if you don't have one, please feel free to take it with you when you leave. Uh, What we're going to find today is the interrogation of Jesus in the temple continues. Last week, we talked about Jesus being interrogated in particular around what authority he has to do the things he's doing, and that will continue in today's text. There's actually three groups that are separately going to bring some questions. I'm sure there are many more that we don't have recorded in the Word, but the three that are recorded in this text that Mark is, uh, has recorded for us uh, based upon Peter's firsthand testimony are uh, the group of Pharisees that talk to Jesus about government and taxation, particular Caesar and giving t- uh, taxes to Caesar. The second group are the Sadducees who are talking about, is there a resurrection? And they bring that question to Jesus, is there life after this life? And then the third will be a scribe who is going to be asking Jesus about the greatest commandment. And so what we're going to see is Jesus address how we should actually deal with and and kind of respond to the governing authorities around us, how we should think about the afterlife, and how we should think about how God's law helps us interpret all of life. Um, And in this, I want to just put in front of you and I again that our view of God and what God has done, in other words, how we answer the question, who is God? theology expressed by what we've seen God do, which we'll call Christology, the way in which God shows up in a place to do a work, it works out in shaping our ideology, our identity, our sense of who we are, which leads to what we do, our practice. So what we're going to see today is when you get a wrong view of who God is and then what God does, it leads to a wrong understanding of yourself and your world. And what we want to do is keep coming back to saying, who has God revealed himself to be like through the work in particular of Jesus Christ so we rightly understand how we relate to God and therefore how we then live in this world? Another way of thinking this is that, thinking about this is that your view of God shapes your vision of the world. The way you see God gets worked out in what you do. Your, your vertical relationship with God is always expressed in your horizontal expression uh, in this world. So what we're going to see Jesus do is correct their wrong views of God so that their behaviors can get in line with who God is and what he's done. So the first thing we're going to see is God's sovereignty. God is sovereign uh, over all. So let's look at verse 13 together. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. So we already know their motives are not pure. Once again, we see that. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. A little bit of flattery <laughs> that they're starting with. Now, the good news is all this is actually true of Jesus, but they're, you know, they're trying to like butter him up just a little bit before they ask the question. The question then is, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? So that's the question, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Now the tax that they're referring to is the imperial poll tax. Uh, People were required to give a denarius, which is a one one day's wage. Uh, And it's interesting that the beginning of this particular tax began in AD 6. Jesus is a little kid at this time. And uh, it continued on. If you know much about the history of that taxation and what it led to, Judas the Galilean at one point founded a rebel cause because of this taxation that eventually grew into what we now know as the Zealot Movement. Uh, The Zealots were a group of people who believed that God's way of delivering his people was going to be through a violent revolution. And so uh, even Jesus had even a zealot or so or two on his, in his band of followers, and they would regularly carry a little knife in their, in their belt, ready to just kill a Roman soldier if given the opportunity. So can you imagine, by the way, you've got Jesus' band of disciples, one's a tax collector, one's a zealot. Like that alone, you're going, well, what, who picked this team? Uh, you're like, this is not going to go well for them. Uh, so that, Jesus is in the middle of that with his own disciples, but the, the question of the day is, should we actually give taxes to the Roman government? And, of course, 
They're trying to trap Jesus because there's a lot that this represents. In fact, I want to put a coin up in front of us as we consider. uh, That's the actual coin that they had to give as a tax. Uh, On the coin, you'll notice that Caesar's uh, bust there. And the language around it, this is the one on the left, uh, says in Latin, Tiberius, Caesar, Divi, Augustus, Filius, Augustus. Which in English means... Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. In other words, Caesar Augustus, the son of God. Okay, that's what's being stated there. And for them, God was Augustus. So this is a statement of deity on a coin. You can imagine the, the tension. Do we give unto Caesar this tax? And the very coin itself represents a form of worship. Then on the other side, if you notice, that's actually... Uh, the, the mother of Tiberius, Livia, and the inscription there on the side is Pontifex Maximus, which means high priest. So you've got son of the living God, and on the other side, his mom, the high priest. Uh, so this isn't just taxation. This is, in a sense, an acknowledgement of a form of worship uh, in terms of the power that the government had over the people. So the question is, is a bit of a dilemma because if Jesus says, I think you should pay taxes, what's in that statement? Uh, and of course, the Jews are going to be quite frustrated by that kind of affirmation of the Roman government because like we've said in the Unexpected series, uh, we, we know that the Jews were expecting a Messiah that they believed would overturn the Roman government. And so, of course, the zealots are waiting for Jesus to say, down with Caesar, and then they're going to pull out the knives and the, the revolution begins. That's, that's, what, that's the tension point. But the religious Pharisees also know, because they're with the Herodians, they know, the, remember Herod represents the Roman government to the Jewish people. Uh, they know if Jesus says, no way, down with Rome, then Jesus is going to be killed. Because that's fundamentally uh, punishable by capital punishment. So, He's, he, he's, he's in a quandary, but at least to us it is. It's not to Jesus. Uh, he responds, look at verse 15. Knowing their hypocrisy, you know, he knows exactly what they're up to. They don't really care about his question as much as they want to get him killed. Uh, the way he responds is, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Now, first of all, before we unpack this a little bit, there's some irony here, don't you think? When Jesus says, Bring me a coin, who has the coin? The Pharisees. So it's like, Oh, we're the ones who are holding the coins. You know, we're asking you to make a judgment. We've already made it a judgment because we're holding the money in our pocket. So uh, I, thought, I think that's pretty brilliant of Jesus. He doesn't have any, obviously, so he brings uh, it to their attention, and they bring him the coins. And then he shows them that the, the image on the coin is Caesar's coin, or Caesar's image. And uh, the, the word image in the Septuagint, in the, the Greek uh, translation of the Old Testament is the same word in the Greek here. So it's the same uh, exact word as the image when you see in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, where we hear in the beginning God made them male and female in his image. He created them. That very word image that Jesus is using here is the same word that was used in describing us, men and women, as image bearers of God. So don't miss what's happening there. He's saying, tell me what image is on this coin. Caesar's. Well, give to Caesar's what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. In other words, all of you bear God's image. So even though this little coin has Caesar's image, big whoopee, right? Like you all bear his image and you're holding a coin that bears an image of somebody who's an image bearer of God. Ultimately, Jesus is saying there isn't anything that God isn't sovereign over. Like, he has all authority, even over the coin, even over the guy whose face is on the coin. He has all authority over Caesar because you all were made in his image. So sure, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but let me just clarify, we should give to God what is God's, which is Caesar. 
Caesar belongs to God. All of Caesar's government belongs to God. All that Caesar has belongs to God. In other words, Jesus, in a sense, is affirming taxation or God's form of government while affirming that God is sovereign over government. That's what he's doing. He's saying, yeah, you live in a situation where you have an evil ruler. And remember, Mark is writing his gospel to the people who are in Rome during the day of Nero's rule. And so we know how evil it really got, right? It got really bad. People are being burned at the stake for their faith. But God is sovereign over that because we even know that through the blood of the martyrs in Rome, the gospel went out to the ends of the earth. And we're here today because God is sovereign even over Nero and how he even orchestrated that even evil would bring about about God's divine purpose, right? So here's the thing that I want us to think through. Family, we're not called to revolt against the government. We're also not called to be passively disengaged with the government. Please, Jesus is not saying, hey, you know what, just remove yourself and be disengaged. He's saying God is sovereign over the governing authorities he puts under you or over you, just like Romans 13 God appoints them and God can raise them up or he can tear them down and we're called to submit to the governing authorities as we submit unto God and in submitting to the governing authorities, we trust that God will still have his way in the end. See, I I had to repent more recently. I'll be honest, family. I have taken a much more passive seat in the state of Washington than I did when I was in other states. And let me just tell you why in terms of like election and voting. It's not okay. I'm, I'm, I'm repenting. I remember being in another part of our country during, I think it was the first election of Obama. And I was, and by the way, I'm not making my state for or against Obama right now. Just, I remember being in another part of the country. I was speaking in another place and I'm watching the numbers, you know, and I'm going to fly back that day and enter into the voting uh, booth and put forth my vote. And I, literally while I'm watching it, they say, Washington has been decided. I'm like, I haven't even voted. How can they decide I haven't voted? And I bought into this idea like, Jeff, it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter if you vote. It will be decided for you. And I took a passive seat in my heart in engagement in politics, and that's not okay. And I'm just just letting you know, I'm not doing that anymore. But I I have to repent of that because I think for a lot of us, we just, maybe you're like me, it was just like, it doesn't matter I just kind of fall into a skepticism about my engagement in, in the politics around me. Anybody with me on that one? You get a little skeptic? You're like, it doesn't really matter. Well, you know what? It does matter because God is sovereign and my vote matters to him. Right? Whether it accomplishes anything that I can see on this earth, I worship a God who can bring about whatever he wants, whenever he wants, and I will do it as unto the Lord and not unto men. And that's part of what Jesus is saying to his people. It's like, you've got to live in a context where there's, there's evil rule around you, in particular Rome, really bad, and yet don't forget that ultimately they will give an account to God who is sovereign, God who is the king of kings, God who is the Caesar of all Caesars, God who's the ruler above every ruling authority on the planet. And so family, I want to urge you in this present election You know I don't go, if you're a guest, by the way, I don't do politics very much from the stage. And I'm not doing politics, but I'm going to speak to how you handle this next election. Please do not disengage passively and don't also become just skeptical revolutionaries who just are going, it's all going to hell. What do we have to do with anything? Let's just get out of here and move to Canada, right? That's kind of where I've been going. Like, I'm going to Canada. I'm not going to Britain because they messed their whole thing up with a union and who knows what's going to happen to them. But like, I'm going to Canada. I'm like, no, I'm not going to Canada. I'm staying here and I'm going to engage. And I'm just going to tell you this, family. Out of any election, please understand, you're probably not electing a president. You're, you're electing the next Supreme Court justices in this election. Just, so, just to inform you, like, this will be the first time a president not only gets to probably elect one, but possibly up to four. Uh, elect uh, Supreme Court justices. And we all know in our country, the Supreme Court justices don't just uphold the law, they now get to rewrite law. Okay, so I, I just want to encourage you as you think about our future, like we're entering into a day when religious freedom is being called into question significantly. In fact, I, I was engaged with a conversation that I, I didn't see it until now where they, they're not talking about religious freedom or religion, they're talking about freedom of worship. And freedom of worship is a nice way of saying, do whatever you want in your building for an hour and a half on Sunday, but don't you dare bring what you believe into the everyday marketplace. Watch it. That's where we're headed. It's like, 
Go, go ahead and act like you believe something for an hour and a half, but don't you dare go to work with that belief. Don't you dare go to your neighborhood with that belief. Don't you dare vote with that belief. Like, it's crazy where it's headed, okay? And I'm not trying to be a doomsday prophet. I'm just saying, don't be passive and disengage. You, you, you have this weekend, we're celebrating the freedom of, of the United States to actually vote, to actually stand up for something, to actually believe in something and do something about it. Now, whether you like this or not, I was in New York a few weeks ago with uh, in a room of, of a bunch of Christian leaders. I was invited to what was going to be a very small gathering, I was told, uh, in which these leaders invited Trump to come and hear from us on our concerns about the future. Uh, they, uh, as I understand, they also invited Hillary to do the same, and she declined. Uh, Trump showed up. Um, the press, of course, made it look like it was something other than what it was. Uh, there was a lot of people in the room. I was one of them. I learned a lot that day. Uh, whether or not, you, you, I don't really care about what you think of Trump or Hillary. One thing that I want you to hear is Ben Carson got up and said this. He said, you know, we all think that we have a special word from God on this. But the fact of the matter is, this is like a chess match. And God is the great, great grandmaster. We're the spectators. We all think it's time for him to cancel right now or to take the bishop and that rook or to use that knight. But sometimes he uses a pawn. Sometimes he does things in a way that's not very apparent to us. And that's where faith comes in because God sets up the rulers and he takes them down. And I heard that, I'm like, man, I wish he would have run for president. I guess he did. <laughs> uh, but it was a really good word. And I remember hearing that just going, Lord, I, I want to live like I believe you're sovereign and that you care about what's going on in our world and that your people are supposed to do something and stand up for what they believe. And, and uh, at the very end of our time together, I mean, there's a lot of things, of course, I didn't like what I heard, but I, it was one thing that I heard that I was like, wow, did that just come out of Donald's mouth? And he looked at all these pastors, and he said, you guys have given in to so much fear. He said, you should stand up for what you believe. And he said, you know, of all the people in this country, you have the most power, because if you would just unite around what you believe together as one voice in this country, you could bring more change to this world than any president could. And I was like, well, I know, I heard that. I was like, did that come out of his mouth? <laughs> you know, like, and here's what happened, family. Just the reason why it's, it, we felt like that was a prophetic word to the church. And whether, you, you, don't, you can go, I don't like the mouth that came out of it. It's okay, God spoke through asses in the Bible, okay? So, okay, I said that in the room. In the King James, the donkeys called that. So, all right, if you're offended, just read your Bible. Um, I'm not saying he is. I'm just saying he can speak through anything he wants, okay? But here's what happened. Afterwards, afterwards, we all, like there were a thousand at the room. There were only supposed to be like a hundred. A thousand, we all got on our knees and started praying and saying, God, you're king. You're ruler. You're the authority we submit to. You have got to move. We, have got, we are dependent on you. And it was a beautiful time of just looking across the room and just men and women, black and white, Hispanic, Latino, Asian, you name it, all of us are on, on, on our knees praying before the true ruler who is sovereign. Because he's the one who has to do the work, ultimately. And so I, I want us to be a, a family who's not living in fear of what's going on around us, or skepticism, like it doesn't matter, or passivity, I'm not going to engage. And not in revolt either. We're not, we want to honor the authorities God puts over us, just like he commands us to do in Romans 13, in 1 Timothy 2, in 1 Peter. We, we want to be those kinds of people, 1 Peter 3. And so... The only way we can do that is not only to believe that God is sovereign, but God is eternally powerful. We have an eternally powerful God. And as we go into the next interrogation to Jesus, it's important to note that there were two dominant parties in Jesus' day. There were actually many, but there were two dominant ones that stood out amongst the rest, and that was the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And this next group are the Sadducees. It's important for you to understand how they differ as we enter into this next question that he's going to bring to Jesus, that they're going to bring to Jesus. The Pharisees believed in divine sovereignty. So as Mark is writing this, if you, know, if you know the difference between Pharisee and Sadducee, Jesus just dealt with the divine sovereignty issue, okay? The, the Sadducees don't believe in divine sovereignty. They only believe in free will of man, that God pretty much just goes, okay, get after it, and that he doesn't engage it anymore. He doesn't he doesn't step into human history and interrupt it or change it or direct it. He's not overseeing it, uh, that he's not the one that ultimately has his way. 
So they, they, those are two differences there. So the Pharisees also believed in angels and demons. So they believed in the unseen realm, whereas the Sadducees did not believe in that realm. The Pharisees accepted a much broader understanding of their Old Testament scriptures. They didn't call it Old Testament, we do, but their scriptures were the Torah, which is the five books of the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They also believed in the writings, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, some of the writings. And then they believed in the prophets. Those were their, their bulk of scripture, what we now know as our Old Testament. Okay? They also affirmed oral tradition. In other words, what the rabbis would say about the Bible. So they went a little further beyond those three uh, bulk uh, you know, texts to what the rabbis thought of it. Now, the Sadducees, on the other hand, they only believed the first five books of the, of the Old Testament, the books of the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, were the scriptures that they were going to submit to. So you can see that's different. Now, wh- why is that important? Because the Pharisees affirmed the resurrection. The Sadducees did not. Now, the reason why is because as they read the first five books of the law, they didn't see an overt doctrinal statement about angels, demons, and resurrection, okay, which the Pharisees believed in. The Sadducees are saying, we don't see it there. So since it's not there, we're not even gonna, we, God has nothing to say about that. That's kind of where they landed. Okay, so that's what, you got, got the picture, the two groups? Okay, now let's read. The Sadducees came to him. Oh, by the way, before I go any further, one other thing that's really important to get here is that the Sadducees were kind of known as the, the kind of the spiritual aristocracy. They, they had a significant uh, connection to wealth and power, and they were very closely associated with the priesthood, who also had political and religious power. Uh, so in a sense, they, 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 they kept their mind often on sociopolitical approaches to world change and not, God, we're going to ask you to do a work. Uh, so there was that sense of, you just, you just got to do, you know, just basically they were the activists of the day. If you think of it that way. So if you could take our present-day social activism, which leans into political power and might to get what you want done but doesn't believe we need to call on God to do the work, that was this group. That's the Sadducees, okay? So if you've ever heard anybody say, you know, that person's so heavenly-minded, they're of no earthly good. Anybody heard that? So heavenly-minded, they're of no earthly good. The Sadducees are so earthly-minded that they, have, they don't have heaven's good in mind. They're not thinking God's interacting at that level, nor will they be accountable in the end because there's no resurrection anyway. So just, you die, and that's it. Your soul perishes. That was their belief. Okay, so keep reading verse 18. The Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. And now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. The second took her, and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. So it continued all the way to the seventh. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. You ever met with somebody, and they're like, so how many angels can stand on the head of a needle? Or is, could God ever make a rock so big he couldn't move it? You, you ever met with people like that? You're like, come on. It's not even a possibility. Like you're creating a scenario that doesn't exist. And that's what's going on here. They're trying to discredit the idea of the resurrection by devising a scenario that discounts the resurrection. Now, it's likely they're drawing from the Apocrypha in the book of Tobit where the, the story is told of, of a woman who marries seven men and remains childless. It's likely they're drawing from that story. Uh, but... What's important for you to understand in terms of making sense of this story is that when they say Moses told us to do this, they're referring to, to uh, the, the Leverite uh, marriage. Do you know what a Leverite marriage is? Leverite? It's, uh, it's basically Israel's attempt to make sure that nobody, nobody's name passes away or inheritance doesn't get passed on. So in other words, in order to make sure that you, you know, if you were childless, that, childless, that the, the inheritance that was yours, which of course is part of Israel, and that therefore the tribes of Israel want to stay together, want to keep the inheritance of the land and all the things God's given them for the good of God's people and 
hopefully to be a blessing to the nations, which they were called to be, they would say, we can't just keep letting people die without children, remaining childless, and not having a name to pass on or inheritance to give. We've got to make sure that somehow gets solved. So that's, that's what the, the reference is. And some of you remember uh, Er and his br- brother Onan, who was asked to, to marry his, after Er died, asked to marry his wife, and he refused to have children with him. And God then judges him because he continues to not make this woman pregnant. I mean, he goes to great detail, which I won't go into because I know we have a mixed room of kids in the room. But uh, some of you can look it up later if you'd like uh, and read more about that in Genesis 38. So he was not fulfilling his leveret uh, uh, calling. And so Jesus responds to this. Verse 24, Jesus said to them, y'all with me, by the way? You follow what's going on? It's like, let's come up with a scenario that that you can't answer because I know Jesus believes in, in monogamy, not polygamy, so we're not going to be in, in heaven with lots of one, you know, one woman with lots of husbands. Uh, that's not going to happen because we believe in a, a God of, who believes in monogamy, who calls us to monogamous relationships. But we also know that this idea of, of passing it on over and over again, like at what point does it ever end? You know, so he's trying to throw him a, a conundrum that Jesus can't solve, and I love how Jesus responds. Verse 24, Jesus says to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you, neither, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. That's what he's saying is, you guys don't know your Bible. Can you imagine? I mean, these are the, like the experts. These are supposed to be the teachers of the people. And Jesus goes, the reason why you're already wrong is because you just don't know your Bible. That's your problem. And you don't even know the power of God. So you've come to the wrong conclusion because you have the wrong view of, your, of the word of God and therefore the wrong view of God. So that's why you're coming up with this crazy conundrum because already it shows that you don't know what you're talking about. You're supposed to be experts. Now, by the way, this is a warning to us. Have you ever been with people who, who study their Bible endlessly but still don't know God? Maybe that's, going to, maybe that's you. Maybe you, you thought that if I just know more of this, I'll know more of him. But like I said last week, if you don't actually want to know him through this, you'll actually miss him through this. And that's what the, 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 the Sadducees are missing God. They, 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 they think they know the word of God, but they don't know the God of the word. Uh, a book that I've recommended our staff read, in fact, I would highly recommend it to all of you who want to grow in your spiritual leadership of your home or, or your, your neighborhood or your community or wherever God has given you some kind of influence, is a book called The Heart of a Servant Leader. It's actually not a well-known book, but it's a very good book. It's by Jack C. Miller. He was a significant influence in Tim Keller's life. He helped found uh, World Harvest Mission. And in it, we're, we're just reading through it together. It's a lot of his letters that he wrote to leader, young leaders that he was mentoring. And one of the, one of the letters, he, he writes, every time that I, I am uh, failing to hear the, the, the voice of God, the question I ask is, do I want to hear his voice? So any failure in my life to not hear God's voice needs to be confronted with the first question, do I want to hear his voice? And I, I think that's what Jesus is going to do with the Sadducees. It's like, you, you guys, you don't really care what God has to say about this issue. You, you've already determined ahead of time what you're going to believe, and if the word of God doesn't affirm it, you just reject the word of God instead of uh, submit yourself to it. Let me ask you, as you think about struggles you're facing or questions you're asking or maybe even reasons why you might have a hard time believing do you want to hear God's word on it? Do you want to hear God's will on it? Or, or do, you, do you approach God's word like this, where you, and you guys, family, you've seen me do this before, it's like, if it doesn't support me, then I reject it. If it doesn't make my plans number one, if it doesn't get around my agenda, if it doesn't affirm what I already believe when I come to it, then I reject it. And I just want to say, that's, and that's arrogance. To, to have God divinely give you his words so that you would understand the heart of God, the mind of God, the ways of God, and then to say, I'll only accept if it affirms me and my preconceptions of God, my presuppositions about what he's like or what he does, is arrogance. Just do a heart check, family, because I think there's a warning in this for us. To say you know the scriptures means you, you, you want to know God. You want to know his character, and you want to know what he's like, and you want to let him challenge your presuppositions, challenge your preconceived notions. 
We're not, we're not reading the Bible and saying, God, will you bless my plan? We're saying, God, will you give me your plan? We're not reading the Bible, God, will you affirm my beliefs? We're reading the Bible saying, God, change my beliefs so they affirm what you say is true. And that's part of what Jesus is getting after with the Sadducees. He says, you don't know your scriptures. You don't, you don't even know God. It's sad. At one point, Jesus says to the religious leaders, you diligently search the scriptures thinking that by them you'll have life, yet you fail to come to me. And fundamentally, he was saying, they always were pointing to me all along, but you just didn't want to come and submit to me. Jesus goes on in verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, to be clear, Jesus is not saying all present marriages will be dissolved and that we're going to live in kind of a neutered state forever. It's not what he's saying. He's saying there will, there, what will happen is there, will never, there won't be more marrying and giving away in marriage. Um, so as far as we can see here, this, it's not a dis- dissolution of the present marriages. Like we're going to walk in and I'm going to go, I don't know who that is. Janie, is that your name? No, I'm going to know that's my wife. Like, the, we're not talking about a, a disassociated state. And that's what we got to, I, I don't know how, how you've been taught, but some people think, like, all that happened here doesn't matter in the future. And unfortunately, what that does, it makes us go, what, what I do here means nothing for there. But that's not at all true. Everything you do here has something to do with there. Everything you do in this body, in this life, affects what happens in the next life? It's not as though they're disassociated or one dissolves and the other starts. What we do here matters greatly there, including marriage. And he says they'll be like angels. And it doesn't mean that they won't, like we're, gonna, we're not getting married. That's not what he's saying there. Now he's saying they won't die. Angels don't die. So in this future state, there's going to be no longer giving in marriage, marrying or giving in marriage, but we'll be like angels in heaven. We'll, we're not going to die. And the reason why he's saying that is because there, will never be, there won't be a need for a leferate ma- marriage. Because there's not going to be a need to have your name go on by somebody else. There's not going to be a need for your inheritance to be carried on by someone else because there won't be death in heaven. It will be the end of death. They're, they're not going to die again. So the, the need for the representation of a leferate marriage is not necessary in that state. Now what's important also to keep in mind is Jesus, like the Jews, saw marriage uh, in in kind of a creational sense that there was a creational order of marriage, which is the normal marriage, and then the leveret marriage would be a a fall order marriage. In other words, because of death, because of sin, which produced death, there's things that God put in place to deal with the temporary nature of sin and its power over us to kill us, basically. So in the new reality, in our new resurrected state, the leveret marriage is not going to be even necessary because death will not have any victory over us. It's a whole new world where there's no longer power of death over us. And here's what's really amazing. In that new world, guess whose name we're all going to have? The name of God the Father. We're going to be baptized in the name of the Father in real form. Like we get baptized here in the name of Father, name of Son, name of Holy Spirit. In that day, we will know like we are known. We will be a part of the family of God in perfect unity forever. We won't need anybody to give us a better name. We'll have the name that is above every name, Jesus Christ, as our name. The one that we submit to will be the one in whom we find life in. That's where we're headed. And we, we're co-heirs with Christ. So we don't need anybody to take care of our inheritance. We get the inheritance of God. Going back to the, the, the concerns of people. Just think about this. The people in Rome, they're thinking, man, what do we do with this governing authority who can take our life any minute? How do we handle that? Well, guess what? God's going to have the final say. He's the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the Caesar over the Caesar. And what's going to happen in the next life is you're going to be a co-heir with Christ, so he can't take anything away from you because everything that is on this planet belongs to Jesus. So, like, don't be afraid. Live with confidence and hope in the eternal reality of the future resurrection. And the Sadducees have no future hope to look to nor a sense of accountability for what they do because there is no after. This is it. And think of the, think of the pragmatism that leads to Whatever it takes to get whatever we want in this moment, that's what it leads to. No accountability after, after death. No sense of a better future. It's just this is all we have. 
which also leads to incredible negativism, right? A skepticism, like, I mean, if you live this way, by the way, how do you get up every day? You move to Canada. (laughs) Just kidding. Canada's not all that it's cracked up to be. Welcome Canadians who are here. But then he goes on in verse 26. As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? Now he's going to reference Exodus 3, where God calls Moses through the burning bush to be a representative of his before Pharaoh to deliver his people out of Egypt. In the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. I would have loved to have been in that moment. Jesus looks at the Sadducees, he's like, you guys are really wrong. You don't know your Bible, you don't know God's power, even your own text. Now don't miss that. He's using their accepted text. Exodus 3 is part of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. It's, It's their accepted text. And he's going, even your own text tells you you're wrong. Because God's not the God of the the dead, but of the living. And some of you are going like, wait a minute, I thought Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died. Yeah, but don't miss this. God is a covenant God. God, when that, when that phrase is ever stated in the Bible, I am the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, he's referencing the promise he made with Abraham regarding what he would do with his people. That he would bless them to be a blessing. That he would make Abraham's name great. That the, their nation would have like numbers that you couldn't even hardly count. Like sand and the seashore and stars in the heaven. And that promise is a, called a covenant. Where God says, I will do this and you do this. Now don't miss it. A covenant, biblically, whenever the, uh, one of the parties dies, is null and void. So once one of the people in a covenant dies, the covenant's done. There's no obligation whatsoever to the covenant. So if Abraham's dead, God has no obligation to the covenant whatsoever because it was to Abraham. So what is, what is, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, Abraham's alive, you idiots. Not, he didn't say that. That's Jeff's paraphrase. <laughs> Abraham's alive. You, you should know this. Abraham's alive. Isaac is alive. Jacob is alive because God doesn't make covenant with dead people. He makes it with living people. So what is Jesus actually affirming? God is able to raise the dead to fulfill the covenant that God made with people who can't stay alive on their own. And the beauty of the covenant, the way it works in all of scripture, is God says, even when you're unfaithful, I will be faithful. Even when you can't even stay alive, I'll bring you back so that I can be the fulfiller of the covenant on both sides, both my promise and your fulfillment. It's amazing. By the way, family, this is really good news for us because what this means is God is faithful when you are not. When you cannot keep his word, when you cannot obey it perfectly, when you can't save yourself, he is faithful to save you. He is faithful to obey on your behalf through Jesus Christ every single letter of the law. He's the God of the living, not the dead. See, if if they get rid of the resurrection, they get rid of the covenant. If they get rid of the covenant, they got nothing. He's got to be the one who can raise the dead. He's got to be the one who can make people unfaithful faithful. By the way, your view of God shapes your world. Remember this, because for a lot of us, if we think, you know, God, God has nothing to do with what happens after our life, then most of us live as though this life doesn't really matter. And that's why you need to know the, the, the next part, because one of the scribes comes up to him, and he, he hears them disputing with one another. Verse 28 And seeing that Jesus had answered them well, he asked them, which commandment is the most important of all? In other words, what he's actually asking is, of all the commandments, which commandment helps us understand the rest of the commandments? This was a normal question that rabbis would ask. In fact, there were 613 identifiable commandments in in the Torah. 365 of them were prohibitive. You may not do this. 248 were positive. You need to do this. You must do this. And the rabbis would differ on what were the light and weighty uh, laws. Which ones were lighter, which ones were weightier. And then they all had to answer, they would all ask this question, which one is the most important of them all? In other words, which one actually not only is number one on the list, but which one helps us understand how to obey the rest? And that's, that's what this man is asking. This scribe is asking Jesus. And Jesus is prepared with his own answer. Verse 29, Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord 
is one. Now, I want to stop before we go any further because what Jesus is affirming is that God is one. And we might hear that and go, yeah, yeah, I get it. There's one God. But you may miss it if you don't slow down. First of all, he says, uh, this, this, is, this is the commandment that, that you, you need. The most important one is, hear, O Israel. Now, the, the, that phrase, hear, O Israel, hear, was uh, also referred to as shema. That's the Hebrew word for to listen, to hear, to listen, open up your ears. And so what, what it starts with is, God is speaking, start listening. Okay, now, before I go any further, family, I want us to realize what is about to be said is really important for you and I in our everyday life. Because when he says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, he's speaking into a context that believed there was a God over the sun and God over the rain and God over the harvest. And there was a different God for every single aspect of life. And what this is saying is, no, there is not a bunch of gods. There's only one God over everything in life. The God of your sleep, the God of your work, the God of your recreation, the God of your meal, the God of your relationships, the God of your marriage, the God of your parenting, the God of how you go to work, the God of your boss, the God of Caesar. He is one God over all. So it's like, listen up, Israel. And what is he saying? He's saying, every single moment of every single day is an opportunity for you to listen to God in every single thing you do and say, I do everything as under the one God because he's God over everything. He actually cares about everything you do everything. Yesterday, I'm working in the backyard doing a bunch of yard work, and I'm like, oh my goodness, like, I hate this stuff. Like, this is, I don't even own this house. I'm a renter. Why am I making it better? And, and that moment, it's like God's going, because I'm one God over renters. I'm one God over the grass. I'm one God over the weeds. Yes, God, I still am mad at Adam because we wouldn't have weeds. Thanks, Adam. You know, so I'm, I'm having this time with God about worshiping the one God in every activity of life. And why is this important? Because you won't engage in the world if you believe there's a bunch of gods. If you think President Obama or future President Hillary or Trump or whoever else it might be is our God, then you should be hopeless. But if you believe God's God over them, then you have great hope. If you think God is only the God of today, but not of the God of tomorrow, then you've lost your loved ones and you're without hope. But we don't mourn like the world mourns because we know that God doesn't end at our death. God continues to bring us to life so we get to enjoy eternity with him forever. We don't mourn like the world. We know of a God who's the God of the resurrection. He's the God of everything, even death he's the God of. And so we have great hope. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Israel needed to be reminded daily that God is God over absolutely everything in the world. So do we. And then the correct response, if you believe that, is what Jesus goes on to say, verse 30. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. In other words, if he's the God over everything, then you love him in everything. You worship him in everything. You give him your everything. You don't hold anything back because he's the rightful God of everything you have. The rightful God of everything you think. The rightful God of everything you believe. The rightful God of every single action you engage in. He is God. The one God over every aspect of life. And what I've learned is that what I ever, whatever I love most is what I worship most. And I know that there's areas in my life where I have worshipped false gods because I've let something else capture my affection, capture my attention, capture my fear more than God. And Jesus doesn't just leave it there because he knows that how we view God shapes how we live life. There's a vertical is expressed in the horizontal and he goes on. The second is this. Now, they don't normally do that. When they, a rabbi would say, well, here's the, the commandment. They'd give one. Jesus gives two. And in a sense, Jesus is not giving two. He's giving one. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. No other commandment, singular, greater than these, plural. What is he doing? He's saying, you need to understand to love God requires loving others. There's not a separation of the two. There's not this idea of, uh, of a kind of a, out there life with God that doesn't affect the in here life with others. Like what Jesus is doing is he's, he's getting rid of the divisions that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes are creating as though some parts of life really don't matter and others do. He's, he's getting rid of this idea of this mysticism or this, this disembodied worship where we come together in a building and we say, I love you, Lord, with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I hate my neighbor because they drive me nuts. 
They still haven't cut their lawn. Or, you know, God, I, I love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, but I can't stand my boss because they don't treat me the way I deserve. Right? God, God, I love you with all my heart, mind, and strength because you have been so loving to me and forgiven me, but I will not forgive that person until they make it up, until they finally tell me they're sorry and are serious this time. I'm going to hold on to the grudge. I'm going to hold on to the bitterness because we have a separation in our mind as though we can say we love God with our lips and hate people with our lives. And you can't. First John says, if you say you love God but hate your brother, the love of God is not in you. First John 4. You can't say you love God who is love and then not love others because then you've, you're actually worshiping another God. You're not worshiping the God of love and grace, forgiveness, who's patient and enduring with a bunch of sinners like us. You're worshiping a God who you think only loves people who are entitled, who have behaved well, who somehow deserve it. But the Bible's really clear, Romans 5, 8, this is how we know love, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's how we know it. And if you know that love, then you love sinners. You love people who don't treat you well. You love the person who doesn't cut their lawn. Okay? Family, Jesus puts together the two and says, you don't get to separate them. Now, it's interesting how the guy responds. Because here's the the thing. I I don't want you to miss this. In order to love like God, you've got to receive the love of God. You can't love like God without God's love. For Jesus, the love for God releases the love of God because God is love. The very nature of God is love. And the man says to him, you're right, teacher. You've truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him and to love him. He actually puts them together. It's like, this is like a breakthrough for the religious leader in some ways. To love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. The scribe represents something that, if you know your Old Testament scriptures, many times God said to his people, I don't desire, I, don't, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. At one point he says, your, your worship services make me sick because you come together and you say how much you love me and then you go and you bite and you devour and you hate one another. And your worship is just a facade because if you really knew me and you really worshiped me, then you'd extend mercy. You'd, give, you'd, you'd work for justice. You would, you would love to serve others. You would care for the orphan and the widow and the stranger in your midst. You would open up your homes and your lives like I opened up my life and my home to you and welcomed you in. When you were strangers, I treated you like family. God says to his people throughout all of the Old Testament, those, those are the things that that scribe knows. And he, in that moment, it's like, he's like, yes, hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. It's one commandment all together. He kind of sees it. It's one of the first times you see in all of Mark where someone's like, I think I'm getting this. But I love what he says. It's more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. He is quoting scripture there. He is right, but what he doesn't know is that there will be a day when there will be an ultimate sacrifice that brings the love of God to people, and that's Jesus Christ, and it will be the end of every single sacrifice that has ever happened up until that moment. What the scribe doesn't know, in some ways, he is saying something that's predicting what's going to happen so the love of God can be poured into the hearts of men and women, and that is there is one sacrifice that is an expression of the love of God for people, and that's Jesus. See, here's the thing I want you to hear. Jesus suffered and died on a cross for you and me because we don't love well. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. To sin is to fail to be like God in your thoughts, your attitudes, or your actions. In any way that you're not like God, that's sin. To not love others like God loves, to not love as God is love, is to sin. And the Bible says the wage of sin is death. But the gift of God is Jesus, eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Family, I want you to hear this. The cross, and I love, I mean, it's, it's a bloody tool of persecution. And yet, hopefully when you look at the cross, you see the, the horizontal and the vertical. You see Jesus on a cross submitting himself to God the Father, loving him with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength on our behalf. You see Jesus hanging on a cross who lived a perfectly submitted life, our righteousness on the cross. Jesus, who loved perfectly, dying for sinners like you and me. 
so that the love of God would be expressed horizontally to a bunch of people who don't know the love of God. And Jesus not only went to the cross to be for you and me the righteousness of God, the love of God, but he also died for all the ways in which we don't love people. He died to forgive us of our sins. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing is what he cries out from the cross. You and I do not love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength as expressed in how we love our neighbor. We just don't. And we can walk out of here and beat ourselves up and live in shame and guilt, or we can walk out of here and go, that's why Jesus had to die. That's why he had to live a perfectly submitted life out of love for God, expressed in love for us. And at the cross, take on all of our unlovingness, all of our brokenness, all of our sin, and exchange himself for us. What the scribe doesn't know is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love for your neighbor as yourself is not just greater than all sacrifices, but had to require the perfect sacrifice in order for us to even experience it. Jesus, who died for you and me. Think about who he is and what he's done for you. Maybe you're going like, I need someone to be in control. He's the sovereign king for you today. Submit to him. Say, God, take control of my life. Maybe you're going, I need to know that there's more to this life than just what I see in front of me. There is a future reality of the resurrection coming. And let me just warn you, for all of us who spend our lives saying, I don't need God, one day you will know you should have said I needed God because you will stand before God and give an account for all the ways you did not submit to him as the sovereign one, all the ways you did not worship him as the eternally powerful God, all the ways in which you didn't love like he loved you, and you will give an account for every careless word and action you've ever engaged in in your entire life. And I'm telling you, in that day, my only hope is that I have one who loved the Lord God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength and loved me as himself and therefore died for all the ways in which I've sinned. So on that day, I can stand before God and I'll probably get on my face and say, thank you, Jesus, that you took my place so that I can be in your place. You died for me. You suffered for me. You loved for me because I don't. Maybe today you need to bow to the king of kings to be sovereign over your life. You need to trust in the eternal one who can raise you from the dead in that final day. You need to look to the one who loved perfectly on your behalf and say, I didn't, please forgive me. I wanna promise you, if you've come to faith in Jesus or you are coming to faith in Jesus as the only one who could do it for you, then today, you can know the love of God poured into your heart to forgive you and change you and make you into a loving person. He's the king of kings. He's the eternal resurrection power of God. He is the love of God expressed for you. Let me pray for us, family. Father, thank you for your great goodness and kindness to us in Jesus. Father, in a world that looks like it's going darker and darker, we proclaim that you are king of kings. That our hope is not in rulers, our hope is not in governments, our hope is not in politics, our hope is not in business or education, our hope is not in social services, our hope is not in personal activity. Our hope is in the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Our hope is in the eternally powerful God who will make all things right. Our hope is in one who can overcome sin and death for us. Our hope is in, in the God who is one over everything. Our hope is in the God who is love when we are not. And so, Jesus, we ask that you would continue to make known the love of the Father to our hearts by your Spirit right now. Pour it into our lives. The ongoing awareness of our need, but also the incredible fulfillment of your provision. We need you so badly. Help us, Lord. Help us to bring our questions, our concerns, our struggles before you and show us what you're like. Show us what you've done. Rearrange our world because of who you are and what you've done. Be bigger in our life than anything else, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us for the Unexpected Jesus series as we walk through the book of Mark at Doxa Church. Doxa Church exists to equip people to live for Jesus in the everyday stuff of life. For more information, go to doxa-church.com.